Hello and welcome back to the second of our two-part series on the recent Independence Live-hosted conference, Moving Beyond the Sustainable Growth Commission. In this part, we start off with a discussion between Dr. Craig Diel and Professor Richard Murphy, answering some questions about the fiscal policy suggested in the original Growth Commission report. We follow this with a panel discussion hosted by Ilsa Gray with George Caravan, Karen van Sweden and Dr. Tim Rideout discussing options for Scotland's economy post-independence, including the setting up of central bank. So we have with us Craig Diel and uh, Richard Murphy to answer all of these questions around the monetary and fiscal policy of an independent Scotland according to the Sustainable Growth Commission. Hello and welcome to you both. Hi there. Hello. The first question I have for you is um, the, the report seems to suggest that Scotland follows the lead of the United Kingdom in many areas, including banking regulation. Is this a missed opportunity? Yeah, we're, we're, I remember back in 2018 when I first read the, the Growth Commission report and I came across this section within it. Uh, and it said that um, upon independence, Scotland would effectively copy paste the the UK's financial regulations into an independent Scotland. And okay, I can understand a certain sense about that. You, you've seen with the Brexit negotiations and the uh, that you, you you might want a certain grandfathering in uh, of of previous regulations so that you can have a smooth transition. But the next sentence, which said that. Scotland would continue to be aligned with the UK even after independence and we would change our financial regulations to match the UK's, you know, without having a say in those regulations. You can see a lot of the the echoes of everything that's going wrong with the Brexit deal in that. And yes, it definitely is a missed opportunity there. Scotland shouldn't just be content with a financial regulation system in the UK that doesn't work, has not worked, uh, or works all too well for the vested interests that, that, that write those policies. So we should take the opportunity of independence to do something better. Let me add and elaborate on what Craig has just said. And I want to go back to something more basic before discussing the actual regulation. And that is that, as far as I can see from a historical perspective, there isn't a nation on earth that has wanted to be independent from another, which has previously been its, well, frankly, dominant partner, without wishing to reflect its social differences in the future of the country it wants to become. In other words, Independence necessarily means that people have identified that they have different objectives from the country they want to depart from. And I'm convinced that that is now what is happening in Scotland. People are realizing that the values, the systems, the structure of the UK do not reflect what the uh, population of Scotland want for themselves. And I think that's true in financial services, but I think that's gonna be true across a whole load of areas. Now, I'm not disputing, and Craig's right, that in a sense, once the independence vote is won, and I'm sure that will happen at some point, then there will be a period of transition. We've seen a period of transition on Brexit, but it was entirely wasted. We went through three years on Brexit for no outcome. In fact, it took longer than three years. That's got to be used constructively in the case of Scotland. And there is absolutely no reason why Scotland has to start on the real Independence Day, which is several years after the Indy vote, with the regulation that matches the UK's. I certainly wouldn't want that with regard to tax, which is an area which I'm most concerned with, because frankly, the tax system of the UK is rubbish. Um, and with regard to financial services regulation, I can see vast numbers of things that are wrong. For example, the UK is itself saying that its financial reporting council needs to be changed to present. There's legislation before Parliament saying that the regulation of insurance companies and other institutions through what's called the public um Regulatory authority, the PRA is um, wrong. The Prudential Regulatory Authority, sorry, is wrong. We don't want to replicate all the rules within the Bank of England. So it's just crazy to suggest that actually the answer is adopt UK reg regulation and then parallel it when Scotland could do things so much better. 
with so much greater security for investors in particular, with so much greater transparency, which is what so many people want from markets now, and which would therefore attract money into Scotland for management and create a new open, transparent and accountable financial services sector for Scotland, which it hasn't got. To copy England would be disastrous in that case. It would deny Scotland the opportunity for competitive advantage in financial services, which could actually make Scotland into a financial herb services hub in its own right instead of continuing to be a branch office of London. Why do we want to be a branch office of London any longer? That's what the, the Growth Commission is saying, and I don't want that. I would pick up one area there, Richard. You've said that Scotland, becoming independent, wants to be different. Well, according to the Growth Commission report, one of the areas that we're looking to replicate um, as we move from the United Kingdom is the United Kingdom's view on foreign aid. As part of the solidarity payment, Scotland will be making a payment to the UK and then on to uh, the in international um, foreign aid budget. Is this something that seems to make sense to you or should Scotland be looking for something completely different in that regard? worked around foreign aid budgets for some time, worked with a lot of um, NGOs in this sector because of my work on tax justice, which means I've worked with Oxfam, Christian Aid, Action Aid, and many other organisations outside the UK as a whole. I just do not understand this. Is Scotland too wee to decide upon its own aid policy? Is it unable to decide who it wants to support and where? And why is that? Why would it want to have the priority that England puts upon its aid policy. Let's be clear what England makes its priority in aid policy. One is supporting English business. And that's not going to be a policy that Scotland is going to want to support in the future. And the second one is to support British military activity. And again, I really don't think that's something that Scotland is going to want to support in the future. Those are high priorities within the aid budgets. Scotland is going to want to look at how genuinely it can intervene in aid. And the perfect role model here, by the way, is Norway, a country with whom I've worked quite a bit. They have a fantastic government-sponsored aid organisation called NORAD which is Norwegian aid and development. And it is a world leader in looking at how to use aid as a way to A, leverage the status of Norway worldwide and increase its um, diplomatic firepower, but B, to actually bring real change on the ground for the poorest and most disadvantaged people in the world, which is, I'm afraid, not what UK aid policy does. So to follow UK aid policy would be disastrous and absolutely the last thing I think people in Scotland would want. I don't know what you think, Ray, but that's my view. So the, the, the logic, or at least the excuse that was given to me when I was speaking to folk around the Growth Commission about this particular point was that they were afraid that the, the fact of, you know, when Scotland becomes independent, they were afraid of a discontinuity in aid programmes and that could potentially leave people who are reliant on aid losing out, um, to which I'd say, well, why not grandfather in those programmes until they, they are complete to, to some degree or they can be renegotiated? Um, Richard's right. All too often, aid isn't simply a, a, an altruistic gesture. There, there's often, very, very often, some sort of diplomatic or geopolitical purpose behind it. Um, whether it should or shouldn't be, you know, that's, a, that's a different argument. Um, but the fact is a lot of UK aid especially does have that kind of ulterior motive behind it. And I'm afraid that if we are simply ceding our entire foreign aid budget to another country, then Scotland could end up in a situation where you know, we might want to support some cause or some faction or some event that is happening somewhere in the world, yet we're finding out that our foreign aid is causing or exacerbating that problem. And that puts us in a very diff difficult diplomatic position. What opportunities are we missing out by the report following the framework set up in the UK? more or less everything that most independence advocates are complaining about the, the, the UK. In particular, the massive regional centralisation in the UK. The UK is by many measures one of the one of the, 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 the most regionally unequal countries in the developed world. Um, and that inequality has been rising. Uh, and this has been shown over over several metrics. Um, uh, and that is simply because you know, money does tend to flow towards power. And right now, the power itself is concentrated in London and the southeast. So that all that economic 
um, investment and all of the, the the lobbying and wrangling that goes around that tends to flow that way as well. By by becoming independent, we don't just get to make different choices. We get to make choices that are focused here, uh, and we get to do something that is completely different from what the UK is intending to do. And we need to do it because. We have a climate emergency coming. We need a Green New Deal now. We needed it 10 years ago. We need to be doing this at an accelerating pace. But being held back by the UK's priorities, we can't do that. And therefore, we cannot then be the example for other countries to come with us or for us to help other countries come with us on that journey. Let me elaborate, because I agree with everything that Craig has said there, but I want to add a couple of dimensions to it. The UK economy, or rather the English economy, let's talk about it as English economy, because that's what it really is that we're discussing, is focused upon the needs of very large companies, of which there are hundreds based in England with a focus upon London. If we look at Scotland, this is a totally different economy because there's only two really large companies in Scotland altogether that match the size of many English companies. So from the moment I say that, we're talking about something fundamentally different for Scotland. We're talking about an economy that works on the basis of medium and small businesses who are generally much more innovative, generally much more productive. Actually, I do believe that, and I've got evidence to show it in academic work that I'm now doing, and which needs to therefore be orientated towards the needs of those companies if we're talking about the private sector. And we also need to think about how that would mean there would be a change in approach by the government. So, for example, because I think Scotland is generally more socially minded, there would be a change in trade union policy. There would be a change in the way you would want to have worker participation in business. You may well want to look at the promotion of more cooperatives and is really possible inside the current UK environment. You want to look at the way in which you were encouraging bank lending in different ways from the way in which the UK works to try to provide the support and facilities that are needed to get the local jobs that are needed throughout Scotland. You know, Scotland also has a central belt problem of sent, you know, a, an, an issue about concentration. And we need to remember that Scotland is much bigger than that. So there needs to be a diversification policy within Scotland. All of these things need to be addressed. There's no model inside England which lets any of those things be copied in a way that Scotland could use to produce success. We need to look to other models to achieve that. Germany clearly supports its middle-income companies much better. So do the Nordic states. They have a much higher rate of successful company production, but have actually a lower number of companies per head of population because there's less speculation. We need to look at more security of employment in Scotland than has been the norm in England. I could go on and on, but to pretend that the English model of running an economy is now the one that what we want to use in Scotland would be crazy. The very point, I go back to this point, the social values of Scotland are not those of England. And Scotland wants to reflect its social values in the economy to come. And the only way it can do that is by breaking away from the English model. Craig, when you read the Sustainable Growth Commission report, did you pick up anything that would uh, would allude to Scotland having different social values from the rest of the United Kingdom? Do you think that was covered at all within the report? It was to a degree, actually. I mean, the, 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 the language of that side of things uh, was certainly there. Um, my, really, my main issue is if, if you're wanting to talk that language and you want to set those objectives, but then you're deliberately holding back the tools to, to deliver on them, then it's, it's questionable whether there'll be whether those targets will get met. There is the talk, there isn't the walk, to put it bluntly. The report recommends a fiscal deficit moving from the 5.9%, uh, which is given by the JERS figures, to 3%. Now, is this something that's achievable in an independent Scotland? And actually, is it even desirable? The second question is the real one. Um, achievable, who cares? It doesn't matter if the Scottish government runs a deficit. The only issue is, can that deficit be serviced? And remember, there is absolutely no reason to think that the Scottish government will be paying more than 1% interest on its debts after independence, because other countries in Europe in similar situations of similar size are paying that. Even countries like Portugal and Italy have very low interest rates now, and they have many more weaknesses than Scotland is going to have after independence. So will Scotland be able to service the deficit? 
yes. Why is 3% the right figure? There is no rational reason on earth why anybody would choose 3% as the right deficit, but it was chosen by the EU, and apparently that was decided upon about 20 years ago on the back of a fag packet in an office in the Elysee Palace at one time when France was discussing what was the right figure to set for Eurozone budgets after the creation of the Euro. And 3% became the target number. Nobody in retrospect can explain the merit of 3% over 5%, 7% or anything else. The reality is that the deficit of a country has to be the one that is necessary to deliver full employment in that economy. Until there is full employment delivered in that economy, you have not used the resources. That's the people who want to work in that country to create income and therefore to pay tax, to therefore balance the books of that state. Whilst you deliberately choose to not put people to work who want to do productive activity, you are deliberately undermining the finances of your state and to pretend that you have to therefore constrain it to meet that artificial level of deficit, when in fact what you're really doing is putting people out of work to achieve that, is completely unreasonable. So what Scotland has to do is stop adhering to these stupid standards, which frankly are largely ignored right across the Eurozone, and of course ignored in practice now because COVID has blown them apart the world over. And instead, look at what is it we need in Scotland to deliver a sustainable economy, the Green New Deal that Craig's already referred to, and which I share his conviction that we need, and what is it that puts the people of Scotland to work in the way that they want, not that they're forced to work, but the people who can do the jobs they want in the way they want, with the terms that they want, at a decent living wage, who will pay taxes, who will therefore deliver a Scottish economy working to its full potential, and economies working to their full potential don't run deficits. So the goal is not making a financial constraint what stops Scotland working but putting Scotland to work becomes the constraint. The constraint is full employment. Until that's achieved, forget everything else. Well, there is the, a lot of talk over, you know, what are the implications of your national deficit for EU membership and for being within the EU. As Richard says, COVID has effectively suspended those rules and it, there are increasing conversations about whether to bring them back or whether to, for all the reasons, again, Richard said, to, to, to find another path. Um, and why 3%? Well, bigger than one, smaller than five. That really is why it was chosen. See with you, Craig. This doubling down idea, which would be absolutely fundamental to achieving this 3% goal. After all, if you reduce the deficit from 5.9% to 3%, that means the government's got to spend less. By the way, if the government spends less, it also collects ta less tax because government spending is a part of the gross domestic product of a country. So if you spend less, there is less growth in the country, there's less income in the country, so there's less tax paid. So in fact, government cuts are literally self-destructive rather than self-fulfilling in achieving the goal of uh, cutting the deficit. But the main point is that actually this cutting down will deliver austerity. And nobody's going to vote for independence to make themselves deliberately worse off to choose the austerity that failed in the UK from 2010 to 2019 all over again as this policy for an independent Scotland. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And nobody's going to deliver it, not if they want electoral success in an independent Scotland. So let's just forget it. Let's move on from it. That's just spoken about the fiscal deficit. I'd like to just turn our attention to monetary policy. Now, that's another really important lever that the Scottish economy would need to fulfil its potential. And um, who would control monetary policy under the conditions set out in the Sustainable Growth Commission report? Well, if Scotland doesn't have a, its own currency, if it, if it takes the sterilisation approach advocated by the Growth Commission, and if it doesn't have a fully functioning central bank, then those funds England. And the, the Growth Commission does kind of justify that by saying, well, that's not much different from um, what, what happens now. But it really is. Right now, um, no matter how you feel about the politics or the practicalities of it, right now, the, the Bank of England has a remit to set these policies, to set interest rates and inflation targets by looking at the economy of the entire UK, including Scotland. Um, if we're sterilised, and independent, that remit shrinks. The Bank of England is only only needs to look at the economy of the remaining UK. It doesn't need to consider Scotland in those calculations. So we could end up with an interest rate that is based on an economy that we play no part in. 
and that decision has not taken us into account, we could end up with the, an interest rate that does not fit the economy of Scotland. Look, it's not only even worse, it's yes. much worse. Uh, and the reason why, I mean, Craig talks about one dimension of monetary policy, and that is the interest rate, rate setting activity of a central bank. And that would inevitably stay with London if we were doing sterilisation in Scotland. And that would be disastrous for all the reasons that Craig has noted. But actually, interest rates have been almost stable at around 0% and always less than 1% for over a decade now. And there is actually very little sign that they will increase very much, even after independence. Um, and so what is also in the monetary policy bag. Well, that's quantitative easing. And quantitative easing has been absolutely fundamental to governments across Europe, around the world, to actually making sure that they can survive the COVID crisis. Because what QE does is provide a government, like an independent Scotland, with its own currency, with its own central bank, with the opportunity to basically fund itself. Now, I know central banks claim they don't do this. They say they, they buy back the bonds that their government that owns them has issued into the financial markets, and that's done to control inflation. Yeah, 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 it's a good story, but it's not true. The reality is that over the last year, for example, in the UK, billion by billion, every time the government has needed money, it's issued a bond and the Bank of England has bought it. So in other words, the Bank of England has created all the money that is required to literally fund the UK deficit over the last year without impacting tax. It does it on a technical instrument. So there you are. That's what it looks like. That's the instrument required to create money. It's a keyboard. Um, and the keyboard is simply used to enter pluses and minuses into bank accounts. The plus is what the government can spend the money. The minus is what it technically owes its central bank. But that is what has kept the economy moving. If Scotland does not have its own currency and it does not have its own independent central bank, it cannot do quantitative easing. It could not bail out its banks if something went wrong in the future. The UK would not, or England would not be required to, of course, support Scottish banks in that situation, nor would it be required to do QE to control a Scottish inflation rate if such a thing did ever take off. All of those things are within the capacity of an independent central bank in Scotland with its own currency and to have the control of QE which has been fundamental to the tune of 875 billion pounds injected into the UK economy over the last decade by the Bank of England to keeping that economy functioning and solvent is just well economic suicide bluntly. So that's such a large part of running a modern economy and that's something that's just not perceived as being necessary within the Sustainable Growth Commission report. Agree. I mean, literally, it yeah. didn't even think about it. It's, it's the most massive oversight. Uh, well, before we wrap up, I'd like to know if there's anything else that the um, Sustainable Growth Commission report missed out that you would have liked to see in it. And to try and finish on a positive note, was there anything in the report that you thought was actually really good and would help Scotland reach its potential? On, on, on the positives, as I say, a lot of the language that it used uh, in terms of its objectives were good. And a lot of the comparisons that it made with other countries were um, were relatively good as well. Uh, it's talk about how some of the, some of the, the levers that it could use to, to grow the Scottish economy by increasing population, increasing participation, increasing productivity. There was a lot of good stuff in there. Um, however, the... the even just the very fundamental idea of sustainable growth, we're still not sure if what they meant was having a growing economy that is sustainable within a finite planet or whether they just wanted to sustain growth indefinitely. And yeah. <laughs> uh, so unless that question is answered, and even then uh, there's been some really good studies that say that, that a growing, uh, an indefinitely growing economy simply is not sustainable on a finite planet, um, no matter how you, you you change things, then that is going to be the fundamental limit on what can be done with this report, given that we are only a few years away from an irreversible climate emergency. I agree with what Craig says there. I'd add, I mean, I, I think the comparisons are useful, but actually I don't think that the report then follows them. Um, because nobody, for example, who a comparison is drawn with has ever run a successful equivalent of sterilisation. So why promote something which isn't actually happening um, in another equivalent state now? Um, 
so I don't agree with that policy. And, and let's be clear, I also don't agree that Scotland should ever join the euro. So in case people are saying there is uh, something equivalent, no, I don't think there is. Now, let's just deal with something which is missing, but which I think just needs to be mentioned. And that is the tax system. Uh, because again, um, there are too many assumptions made that the tax system of Scotland in the future will broadly look like the tax system of the England, the UK now. Clearly, Again, this would be the starting point. We can't pretend otherwise. Um, I do go back to look at Ireland a century ago, and it did inherit the English tax system. Well, Ireland is, was in a very different place a century ago from where Scotland is now, um, utterly different economies and so on. And it did very slowly adapt. Scotland would want to use that period of transition to rethink tax, because, again, tax is something that has to reflect the society that has created it, supports it, and is willing to pay it. And Scotland has different priorities, I would suggest, with regard to tax, for example, from the rest of the UK. I think Scotland would want a wealth tax. I think Scotland would most emphatically want a land tax to deal with some of the very particular land ownership problems that exist in Scotland and which can't be addressed in any other way. I do think that Scotland would need to review things like national insurance and whether they need to change to encourage that full employment I've talked about. Scotland may want to look at green taxes in a quite different way from that which the UK has done because Scotland may well want to be ahead of the UK in developing that Green New Deal economy. There are so many ways in which, again, the assumption is that the status quo will stay in place. And that just cannot be the right way forward. And that's the real criticism of the Sustainable Growth Commission report. From Sterling onwards, it assumes that what exists works. But if what exists works, people in Scotland wouldn't want to leave England. It's precisely because what exists does not work that there is a demand for independence. It's not just about a Scottish identity is because people actually believe that Scotland is capable of producing something better. And if that's the case, then I genuinely believe that the Growth Commission got the mood wrong and we need to think about how we go forward in Scotland as a different type of country altogether from that which there has been in the past. Land reform wasn't mentioned once in the Sustainable Growth um, Commission report. Um, I also found it quite peculiar that corporate governance was only mentioned once. And yeah. again, I would assume that Scotland, if it's pushing towards a new type of economy, would be looking at the construction and the management of companies. Is that something that you know would you would have expected to be in the report? This is a key issue to me. Now, admittedly, I'm a chartered accountant. I always make the joke, if you cut me open and we looked at the words written around the ring on the inside, it wouldn't say, you know, um, a coastal town. Um, it would instead say chartered accountant. So corporate governance matters to me a great deal. Um, and we have a failed system of corporate governance in the UK that assumes that the only people who matter in a UK company are its shareholders. Now, I've already explained, Scotland does not have that type of company. It doesn't have the quoted companies that dominate the UK market. Um, they, well, there's a couple, but that's it. So Scotland will look at a very different type of stock market if it, if it has its own. There will be many smaller companies represented. And Scotland needs to become a stakeholder-focused community of interest with regard to corporate governance, where reporting to employees is as important as in reporting to shareholders, where trading partners are treated as key players within the business itself, where financiers are in for the long term, not for the short term, and where regulators and tax authorities also get a fair crack at whip to make sure that the Scottish society that's going to be created is fairly represented in getting the information it needs to support those processes as well. In other words, the whole orientation of business in Scotland is whilst being wholly supportive of Scottish business, also requiring that Scottish business be accountable. But actually, if you go back, and anybody who's actually watching who's been taught undergraduate economics, well, first of all, you have my sympathy. And secondly, you'll know that what you're told in undergraduate economics is openness, transparency, and accountability is fundamental to the smooth working of an efficient market economy. And I believe it is. But actually, England works on the basis of closing everything down, trying to prevent anyone knowing anything. Scotland has to have a different mentality of working together, making business partners with community, with government, and together building the future strength of the country. And that requires a different corporate governance code altogether. 
that that kind of corporate accountability must come with political accountability as well. So more democracy, more local democracy, and more um, politicians who are answerable to the, the citizens, the residents, and the voters of Scotland, because that then uh, allows us to protect them from the, the lobbying from uh, the, the, the corporate world that can lead to that that other model. Um, we have seen some wonderful things in Scotland uh, very recently with things like the Citizens' Assembly and the Climate Assembly. And if we can, if we can encourage that kind of political policy push from citizens and that kind of transparency and accountability in the political world, then that can help those decisions be made that, uh, to, to create a Scotland that really does work for all of us. Our session this evening is on raising the potential and performance of the Scottish economy. We are also looking at whether the recommendations of the Sustainable Growth Commission can deliver on this. We have three speakers lined up for you tonight, so please give a warm, if virtual, welcome to George Kerevan, Scottish journalist, economist and politician. George has been deeply involved in the People's Manifesto advocating for a Scottish economy centred on people rather than Welcome, George. And next is Dr Tim Rideout, economist, convener of the Scottish Currency Group and author of Amendment D, proposing Scotland has its own currency and Scottish Central Bank from the outset. So welcome, Tim. Welcome. And next, Karen Van Sweden, Executive Director of the economic think tank Modern Money Scotland, which pursues alternative economic thinking. Karen is also Lothian coordinator for the SNP Common Wheel Group. Welcome, Karen. Well, we only have 30 minutes, and my brief is to get through at least 10 questions. So please keep your answers concise, and I may use the chair's prerogative to chip you along. If you have nothing to add, just say, um, and we'll move on. Um, and we'd like to hear from the audience. Uh, so please, if you've got questions for our panel, use the chat box, start uh, your questions, the capital Q, so that we can find it and indicate if your question answered by anyone in particular. Um, so cracking on, Karen, I'm just gonna dive right in. Modern Money Scotland seeks to change the language and debate around economics, developing policies centered around economic well-being. Can you briefly describe your brave new Scotland and its cornerstone policies? Yeah, um, we are working on a paper on a job guarantee, um, a job guarantee programme that hopefully will be published really soon. Um, I, th you know, I think one of the most obvious things um, to make your country function better, and I think we, we, we have to stop talking about making Scotland perform. Um, I kind of actually quite resent talking about my country in that way, that it's sort of like a dancing seal. Um, I don't see Scotland as being like a dancing seal. I think um, Scotland needs some uh, repair and love and care after 40 years of neoliberalism and, and, and Tory rule. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, first and foremost, um, there should be no involuntary unemployment. The government has shown to furlough scheme that, you know, a, a sovereign government with its own currency can be the employer of last resort. And unemployment has so many toxic effects. And uh, th yeah, that, that's the, the most obvious thing. The, the next most obvious thing is, is education, lots and lots of education, caring for our elderly people, caring for our vulnerable people. I think this is what the Scottish people want. I mean, they, they vote left of centre and they have done for a long time. Absolutely. And George, uh, the People's Manifesto proposes that the Scottish economy is centred on people rather than profit. Uh, what are the key cornerstones necessary for an independent Scotland to deliver in your manifesto or this manifesto? Well, there's, there's no great secret in putting people to work. It's the present capitalist system that, based on profit that stops people working. Uh, so what we need is a, a project to get people working, creating uh, new new homes for people, uh, training people to build in a better way, uh, linking those new homes to uh, a, a green energy project uh, that actually reduces the energy density of the country. We can do this. Um, if there's one thing that's correct in the uh, Growth Commission report, it's the discussion about the levels of uh, investment and productivity. Scotland has a very low level of investment. 
Uh, I think the state can ensure that we up the level of investment and the level of productivity. This is not about abstract growth targets. It's simply about putting people to work to make things that we all need. And that can be done. Uh, and the green, uh, green energy project uh, linked to new housing is the way to do it. But Kieran, I think you mentioned that uh, neoliberalism 40 years of neoliberalism and um, so I would suggest having been in the FTSE 100 uh, for 30 of them uh, that the type of economy that we have it's impossible to deliver on, on what seems quite simple things uh, that, that you mentioned. It sounds like Scotland and independent Scotland would need control of its monetary, fiscal and economic system to deliver change. Um, and you described the Sustainable Growth Commission recommendation of sterilisation as a country without a currency is like a carpenter without a saw. Would you like to elaborate on that for me? Yeah, I mean, um, a currency, obviously, it's, it, it's a, a, you, you know, it's a storage of value, uh, a means of exchange. But, you know, it, it fundamentally is your policy tool if you're uh, a politician, you know, it's the tool that, uh, it enables the action of a policy to happen, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I mean, you have to have the real resources to make the policy tool work. So the two things have to go together. So, you know, for example, the really obvious example just now is um, with PPE. It doesn't matter how much money the Bank of England creates for the British government. Um, if the PPE is not in existence, you can't buy it. So resources we have an abundance of. Um, the currency is a policy tool. Yeah. And Tim, would you like to elaborate on that for me? Um, yeah, well, the, following on from, from Karen there, the, you know, the job of the government really is to, is to run the economy by uh, changing and adjusting its spending and its taxing uh, mm. to get as close to full employment as possible. So, you know, if you're well below full employment, it means the, the government's either taxing too much or it's spending too little or a bit of both. As you move towards full employment, then you need to reduce the deficit beyond full employment if inflation starts becoming an issue, then the state should be increasing tax, cutting spending and running a surplus. So, you know, there are situations where, you know, people say it's always accusing MMT of being about printing money, but it isn't. It's about, you know, managing, using the policy levers to manage the economy to maximise the welfare of society. And... You know, if you have mass unemployment and wasted resources, as we do at the moment, means the government's simply not doing its job. So as soon as practicable after independence, we need our own currency. We also need our own Scottish central bank, but presumably not a pretendy one, presumably one that has all the functions that you would expect of a central bank. Is that is that the case? Uh, absolutely. And uh, you know, we're already working on the initial designs for the, for the Scottish Reserve Bank. Uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to get to the stage where everything's designed and the, the uh, sort of invitations to tender and so forth for the IT contracts and uh, stuff like that are all ready uh, to just sort of push the button the day after an independence referendum. Okay, I've got a few questions coming in now. Uh, the first one is, how unfortunately they all come out is from William Thompson because he's um, he's the one that's adding them. But so I don't know the, the names of the individuals asking the questions. But the first one is how can we know Scotland is performing if we only have the flawed GERS as a data source? Uh, GERS, uh, yeah, I I am uh, I'm I'm amazed that anyone takes GERS seriously. I mean, you know, for me, just I, I look at a report that's trying to make a comparison between a currency issuing entity and a non-currency issuing mm -hmm. entity. How can you make a comparison between that those two entities? And then, the, the, you know, in the first couple of pages, there's a couple of tables to talk about Scotland's economy with oil and without oil, so that it's shown a very clear political bias right from the start. From you know, I have a scientist science degree. I mean, I'm looking at it thinking, this is nonsense. So it's not a good reference to start off with. So how do we get the correct data? in order to be to, to know where we are but there has been a debate i mean i'm i'm getting you see i've lost all my hair there's <laughs> been a debate for 50 years about the lack of decent statistical evidence for how the scottish economy behaves and before devolution after devolution no agency the scottish office or any government since devolution has bothered to actually create a proper statistical agency and do the fact finding. That's one of the key things that the Scottish government could be doing now. 
No, it is a bit of an effort, but it could be done. We don't have that. I mean, Jers is what we've got, and it's desperately, woefully inadequate. Um, uh, but actually, if you think we're actually ahead of ahead of Wales and Northern Ireland in the data we have, Let, let's get the data on the table. Tim. I was just going to add, um, in the, the same SNP conference as Amendment D, there was another resolution passed to set up Statistics Scotland. Uh, so, you know, the, it is SNP policy. The government just hasn't done it. Uh, it's conference policy. <laughs> doesn't mean to say the government's going to implement conference policy. <laughs> yeah. If I move on to the, the six tests, if I dare, um, you know, not only do we not set off with our own currency from the outset and actually for a, quite a significant period, um, but also in order to get our own currency, we've got to satisfy six tests. And these have been described as nebulous, irrelevant and unachievable. And indeed, Tim, I believe that you called the credible central bank test as being a catch-22 test. Uh, can you explain why? What's wrong with these tests? And are they? Is it's it a not, trap? They're, they're not. They're not addressing the real issues. You know, the real issues are things like: Are the new notes and coins ready? Um, you know, have you have you designed the central bank properly and got all the you know. We're going to need something like 350 staff at the point when the currency is launched, rising to 800 in the end. You know, is that in place? Um, you know, have we explained to the public what's going to happen and what they have to do, what they don't have to do? These are the things you need to be looking at. Does the currency meet the needs of the people and business? Well, you know, in the, in the 18th century, they used cowrie shells in the South Pacific Islands and, you know, they worked as a currency. So, you know, what, what sort of test is, is that one? You know, equally, something like... Uh, you know, decoupling from the UK business cycle. But it's something we should do, but you have to have your own currency in order to do it. You can't decouple from the UK business cycle if you're allowing London to set all the policies and uh, you know pull all the levers for you. And how do you get Scottish government to listen? Because these are things that we've spoken about, some of us, for a number of years, uh, perhaps even decades, if you're talking about... Um, what, what can we do in order to, to, to get Scottish Government actually to start planning for uh, currency and communications and a Scottish statistic, statistical office and, and the like? Karen? Yeah, I should say that I'm uh, also uh, a vested interest. I have, uh, I'm, I'm sitting for the northeast of Scotland because I'm in Aberdeen now, not in Edinburgh, um, on the Policy Development Committee. So um, I, I would really like to see a, a democratic process where the members are involved as much as possible in creating policy, um, you know, for the moment, but also that we create an offering for the, the population at large when we come to the referendum and a credible offering that um, brings hope and vision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I've got another question that's come in. With the growing need to transition to green energies, how do you propose that we ensure citizens are skilled or more importantly reskilled for these emerging industries, keeping in mind that any training may need to occur across generations? rather than depending on the young. Slip in here. I mean, there's a key issue. If, if the Scottish government issues a contract, it's in a position to put down various um, obligations on the companies involved. Um, this is where we failed magnificently when it came to uh, expanding um, renewable energy in the North Sea. You know, despite the fact that, 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 we, that we own the waves, uh, when we contracted them out to, to the uh, energy companies, we didn't bother to put in rules like you'll build the um, you'll build the, uh, uh, the technology here, and you'll hire people here, and you'll train people here. Now we should do that. It's a very simple. It's, it's, it's not rocket science, and uh, we should be doing that for a, for a big housing expansion, and we should also be building in contracts into those contracts in terms of of uh, uh, use of renewables. Um, uh, the quality of the housing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's government will. There's nothing else required, uh, but we don't do it, which is why uh, after after been told 10 years ago that there would be this great bonanza of jobs uh, in the North Sea uh, from renewable energy, it never happened. All the jobs went overseas. And I have to say that's at the, that's at the door of the present SNP government. Yeah, I was actually involved in that, um, working in SSE, actually, uh, and... 
one of the issues was the um, being ready in time in some respects, the proven technologies that uh, Scotland didn't have, the UK didn't have um, proven technologies for some of these uh, bigger wind turbines. And had we acted earlier, we may well have done, um, but the, the technologies had to be proven for the insurance companies and, and, and everything went, you know, as you say, went overseas principally to, to Denmark and, and, and Germany. Um, going back to the central bank, I've got another question here. How long does it take to set up a central bank and what are the precedents? And that's a question for Tim. Uh, the latest estimate I've got, but now we've got much more detailed plans, is it will take about four years from uh, starting, which, you know, with, with the preliminaries, we're, we're intending to start in May this year, because that's all. there's a whole load of stuff in des design and so forth, which still really doesn't require either the Scottish government support or uh, uh, much expenditure. So we can then, we can, you know, spend the time between now and the referendum getting everything ready to, you know, so it's designed and uh, we have... Uh, you know, the documentation and so forth. And then once we win the vote, the Scottish government can take it over and uh, push the buttons. And then there will be some serious costs after that. Well, talking about having our own bank, can I turn to financial regulation? Um, the QC that was tasked in the banks post the financial crisis said that the regulator was operating in a world where enforcement against bankers had become a virtual impossibility. George Osborne would, of course, later force out the chief regulator for trying to introduce regulation to the banks. Despite this, the Growth Commission recommends that Scotland grandfathers the UK's light-touch regulatory regime. <laughs> Is this wise? <laughs> and if not, what should replace it? You need to have regulation. <laughs> yeah. Funny that. The clue's um, in the name, isn't it? The clue's in the name. Can I just say, I, I was on the Treasury Committee, UK Treasury Committee, which is the ultimate oversight over the over the regulators, including Bank of England, PRC and so on. And I got to know the senior regulators very well, including Andrew Bailey, who is now uh, head of the Bank of England. And I wrote a very detailed paper on regulation based on the discussions and the work I'd done at the... At the Treasury Select Committee, and that went to the um, uh, uh, Sustainable Growth Commission and disappeared. Was never discussed. And I have no. I've never been able to track down why why that ceased to be an issue. Uh, um, the regulatory structures that we have at the moment um, were reinforced after the two thousand eight debacle. Um, but essentially, the ideas that were brought in in two thousand eight ten were worn down. Uh, by the by the by the banks themselves, uh, mm -hmm. and by the the phalanx of PR people they have. If you, if you I mean if you if you work in the House of Commons, you will discover that most of the people there working there are, are PR people and uh, uh, communication staff for big companies, particularly the banks. And if you go down to the uh, 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 the lobby where all the restaurants are. At lunchtime, you'll see all the banks have lunches every day and breakfast and dinners, uh, and they have this huge PR operation going on. And so, all the regulatory uh, improvements that were supposed to be introduced post 2008 were simply eliminated. And so, the the regulatory regime, if anything, is worse than it was, uh, weaker than it was prior to 2008. Um, so, uh, probably at this stage. Um, uh, we, 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 we need to, to try and catch up. Um, but there are, there are lots of things that we could do, but particularly we have to have, I mean, we have to have a system whereby um, the, 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 the banks that operate in Scotland are licensed in Scotland and subject to Scottish regulation. Uh, and I think yeah. that might be the first stage to try, and, to try and create a regime where we can control what the banks do. Uh, bottom line, let's just nationalise the buggers. <laughs> well, if we go on to corporate, uh, so my background is corporate uh, governance. If we go on to the to, to corporates, and obviously we've got a comply or explain, um, you know, system in terms of the model code. Uh, we also have a situation where shareholders. It was only the two thousand and six Act. So I'm interested in what you're saying that regulations worse than it was because corporate governance is worse than it was when I started my career twenty twenty five years ago, and. 
In 2006, they introduced shareholder primacy, where you have to put shareholders' interests above everyone and everything else, which includes customers, employees, the environment, and society at large. And how can we, if these engines of, of, of growth or, um, and, and employment, you know, how can we deliver or, you know, when that is the priority? Because it pervades every single uh, recommendation made in every single board paper. It changes the whole culture. So what, what type of model should we have for, for, for companies? You know, we need more the German system with uh, things like a supervisory board representing the, the, the workforce and uh, so forth. So obviously, the you know, first thing I, we can throw out is uh, you know, what you just said about uh, the shareholders being the only people that uh, need to be considered. So obviously, that, that shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't be the case. Um, so you know, there'll be... Uh, quite a lot of things you could change about the way companies work. I know Richard Murphy, who's going to be talking a bit later, uh, he has a lot of ideas about, uh, you know, the stakeholders in companies uh, and, you know, that's things like not just the workforce, uh, but the wider community, the customers, uh, the environment, um, you know, they all need to be uh, considered. The suppliers as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go back to another question. Um, sorry, Kieran, please come in. I just wanted to say, I listened to an interesting podcast by Mark Blind, and he was talking about how uh, the, the workers in the car factories in Northern England, when they were being interviewed by the, the BBC, I think it was, they, they said something like, you, you know, this uh, voting for Brexit, don't you see that that's a bad thing for GDP? And, and the, the guy in the, the car factory said, your GDP. You know, that says it all. It, you know, the, 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 the car factories are threatening the workers all the time. We're going to move. Um, so, you know, the, 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 car, the, the people in the car factories, you have voted for Brexit because they, they, they don't have empowerment. And it, it's really toxic for society. And going back to the, the, the thing about borrowing from the banks, I mean, I personally wouldn't go to a bank for a loan because I just regard them as cowboys now. Does somebody want to take up a question about deficit? I'll, I'll, Tim. I'll, I mean, you have to think about what the government deficit is in that uh, uh, in the, the government spends more than it receives in taxation. So that gives it a deficit. And, uh, you know, we've been sold the idea that deficits are bad and uh, uh, so forth. But it's a double entry accounting system. So if one person has a deficit, somebody else has a surplus. And in the case of the state, you know, there's two parts to the economy. There's the private sector and the public sector. So if the public sector has a deficit, it means the private sector has a surplus, which means that when I get to the end of the month, I've got a little bit of my wage left and I can put that in savings. You know, if the government runs a surplus, which is what the Tories would like, that means the private sector has a deficit. So I'm £100 short at the end of the month and I have to put it on my credit card and then pay the interest to some Tory who owns the credit card company. So, you know, that's the difference. You know, the, what you really want is that the, you know, the state carries the, carries the economy, it supports the economy by, uh, you know, its spending and tax policies. It runs a deficit most of the time because that's what keeps us at full employment and that allows the private sector to achieve what it wants, which is to be able to buy the things it needs and have a bit of money left. So, you know, a deficit, you know, the, the deficit for Scotland is not, you know, it's not a bad thing at all. If it is 15 billion uh, in the first year or two of independence, that would be because we're employing 40,000 new civil servants. We're building ministries all over the place, you know, doing the IT systems. So forth. that's all an investment in the economy. It provide contracts for companies all over the country. Um, and, uh, you know, half of that money goes back to the government in extra tax anyway. So uh, in due course, as the economy grows with a post-independence boom, the deficit will cure itself as tax revenues will go up and the government won't need to spend so much. So, you know, it, it's really not an issue. Kieran, your, your, your website had a cool wee video on this. Yeah, I was just going to say the really simple answer is that the government spends first and taxes second. And I think that most people think it's the other way around. Um, you know, that businesses provide currency for the government but the government is the monopoly issuer of the currency it's a, it's a simple monopoly <laughs> you know and and it is the it is the in charge of it so you know it spends first it taxes second and it's good that we've got a deficit because if we didn't have a deficit we'd all have to borrow from our commercial banks to buy our messages we don't want to do that yeah there's never most people watching here have got a deficit 
they borrowed, they got a mortgage to buy the house. And you, you borrowed, you know, three, four times your income, whereas the British government, we're all getting panicky because the British government's got a deficit, which is roughly the same as the GDP. I used to have some wonderful conversations with George Osborne, um, who didn't really know anything about economics. I uh, was very supercilious. And I kept saying to him, are you trying to reduce this, the, the deficit to zero? So if that means you don't want the government to borrow anything. If the government doesn't borrow anything, what are pension funds going to invest in? If they can't invest here with government securities, they'll have to go and borrow somewhere else uh, abroad, which will be highly risky. Don't you understand how dumb it is if you don't borrow anything? You never quite got it. <laughs> okay, another question here is, what is the panel's thoughts on digital currencies? Yeah, well, yeah, um, Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it, you, again, you can't pay your taxes and you can't spend it in Tesco. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, I'm not against uh, creation of currencies. And I used to be involved in the transition time movement and Totnes and Devon and Lewis and Sussex are doing that. You can create currencies. It's getting them accepted. That's the thing. And, and fundamentally, our, our, our government's currency is valuable because they tax us in it. It has a coercive uh, element to it. So, yeah, Bitcoin, you, you know, it's got limited value. It's like a voucher. You can share um, share it between chosen people but again they're not democratically elected so you really would prefer to have your currency coming from a body that's democratically elected excellent um, i've got another question for tim here and that is could you quickly step by step take us through the process for setting up a central bank please well we actually have a five phase implementation plan so phases one and two can be done before a referendum uh but those are those are sort of a you know the initial planning, uh, you know, coming up with the specifications, devising the tenders for creating the communication networks and so forth. After, you know, you get to stage three, that's where you're actually uh, doing things like, um, you know, talking to the commercial banks about how they're going to interface with the central bank, um, commissioning uh, contracts for things like the design of notes and coins, um, and uh, you know, getting a serious number of staff on board with in, in the new premises and so forth. And uh, the bank also needs information systems to provide uh, information on how the economy is doing in order to be able to set monetary policy correctly. Uh, so you know, there's a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's quite a complicated process. But you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, you could you could maybe simplify it by saying that uh, you've got design, commissioning. Uh, for the projects which are necessary to be done, uh, then testing, and then finally implementation with the launch of the currency. Excellent. And uh, where would you like the central bank to be located? Well, personally, I think it should, I think it, it should have its headquarters in the uh, old Royal High School building on Carlton Hill, because it's it's currently empty. It's got a nice Greek style portico. So when the Scottish Broadcasting Corporation is doing a bit about uh, monetary policy or a change in interest rates or something that can stand with the nice pillars in the background. Uh, and, uh, you know, but um, in case anyone gets the wrong message, I'm not suggesting that all the new ministries should be in Edinburgh. The central bank, I think, is about the only, well, the finance ministry and the central bank, the only things I would put in Edinburgh. So other ministries like, say, Ministry of Energy, I'd put it in Aberdeen. You know, Ministry of Agriculture, put it in Dumfries. You know, Ministry of Business and Enterprise, put it in Glasgow. You know, you put the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Stirling or something. You know, you divide it all up around the country. Fisheries in uh, in Shetland, obviously. Uh, you, know, you put the Coast Guard in Stornoway. Uh, so everyone can get a, has gets a, a, an advantage from independence. But everyone can see that there's going to be you know jobs and contracts and whatever in their local area, and that they might benefit from. I might be able to squeeze um, a, a related question in there, and it's about regional economic development, which the Commission virtually didn't touch on. Um, do you think they could have used better examples, perhaps Germany, where decision making's devolved to the regions where there's a focus on MS, SMEs and family enterprises, and where economic and social development are inextricably linked? Uh, does anyone want to pick up on regional development, and can we do it better? George? Yeah. I'm slightly twisted because actually so many of us live in towns and one of the one of the interesting features of how Scotland is constructed is that a lot of us live in in quite small towns unlike yeah. unlike England uh, I think they're pushing back taxation spending decision making 
uh, to um, the town level, the municipal level, is very important. Because there's a whole other sector about rural and islands and so on. Absolutely the same yeah. thing goes. But we need to move decision-making out of Edinburgh on a, on a very systematic yeah. level. So could we have an open social stock exchange? Uh, no, I think we should abolish private ownership of the means of production, but I'm, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned socialist. <laughs> um, and just very quickly, was there anything that you liked within the Scottish Growth Commission report at all? Does, did anyone find any redeeming features? Uh, I think they're correct in saying that we should be in, in, encouraging uh, you know, immigration to Scotland. Yeah, and I would yeah. say we, you know, we should try it, we should do like the Irish did and uh, have a come home uh, policy. Uh, you know, for the 700,000 people born in Scotland who live in the rest of the UK, you know, the, like all my neighbours in S Bank, their children moved to London. So let's have some of those people come home and build, you know, a better Scotland along with us. Katie? Yeah, and the other thing as well is, you know, with, with, the, 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 with actually being independent, you know, you would have the power to say, for example, we, we have a lot of underutilisation of people in our economy as well. I mean, I know of at least one person with a PhD that works in a supermarket and another one with a master's in astrophysics mm -hmm. that works in a bookshop, you know, mm -hmm. so we need to pull these people out of these, these jobs and yeah. get them doing, doing higher value things in our economy. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have now a few seconds, I believe, in which to, to summarise. Um, I don't think anybody really thought an awful lot of the Scottish Growth Commission report. Um, I, I would agree with it. I chucked it in the general direction of the bin, having read it. Um, I think that we do need wholesale change. That's what the panel is agreeing, that we need wholesale change, that we need control of our monetary, fiscal and economic system. We need our own central bank and we need our own currency. And we need to develop... Uh, a well-being economy that benefits our citizens, putting people before profit. So hopefully that summarises tonight's discussion and I have ended on time. Thank you so much, uh, all of you. Uh, I really do appreciate it and for educating me, um, you know, on economics and, and the bold, beautiful new future for Scotland. And then life got on radio.